You are listening to CBS Wire. In my wallet, I've got five Danish kroners. I can't buy much with that. An organic cucumber, a few pieces of huba buba chewing gum, maybe one candlestick and flying tiger. Luckily, I've got two credit cards which give me access to my digital money on my bank account. I have always thought that the concept of money is a little hard to grasp. So I've asked PhD fellow at CBS, Stefan Kierkegaard Slykmassen, to decipher the concept for me. And why not start by asking whether it's a little unlogical to have more digital money than actual physical money, like the ones in my wallet. Uh, this is a long story, but um, let's see if I can keep it simple. We did used to have a gold standard, right? That everything was transferable. Some economists still argue that, right? That that is at least a very good idea. Um, what has happened is that uh, money as a medium has become very important to how the f- world works, and it's become a, a good in itself. It's the most traded good in the world. Uh, Money is, if we go back to prices, really interesting, right? Because many people probably think that money gets their value from the fact that they're government issued and that they're invented by the government. None of those two things are true. Uh, money's been around forever. And it's true the government has a huge interest in controlling money, right? Because this is one of their policy levers that's really efficient. Um, so right now, they do the interest rate. In the Middle Ages, they were cut the metal base out of certain coins and stuff like that. Um, what we see is that the market re- create, reacts to that really quickly, right? In the Middle Ages, like, we wouldn't accept certain coins from certain kings from certain years because we knew the silver would be debased, right? Because they had to finance a stupid war or something like that. Um, but but uh, uh, but the thing is that we still needed this medium of change because it's so efficient that I have a medium now where I can take value now and keep that value stored and then use it later on for something else, right? So there is an argument out there that we should just have free-flowing money, that money shouldn't be issued by government necessarily, or at least not just, but that we could have private entities issuing money. And in fact, it does happen to a certain extent. Credit is a small example of that. A big example right now would be Bitcoin, right, which is a non-government-controlled entity, right, which is probably one of the reasons why governments don't like it. They can't control it. There would be, in theory, nothing wrong with the private issue of money, because if I devalue that, you know, I would lose that market, right? So I would have all things being equal and incentive to keep the value of the money, right? And we could have competing monies then, right? We would have like money that would be accepted by many people but might not have that much value underneath it. We could have, you know, a very local currency that were gold-based or something. There would probably be lots of different business models for that. And um, and there are talk about these like, you know, free, it's called free banking and free monetary systems, right? Where people can just say, you know, you know, if like we we could invent a money now, right? And as long as it's just the two of us or the three of us, there's three in this room, sorry, uh, it will probably work, right? We will trust each other. The price of not doing that would uh, would be very high. It will probably be hard to take a random person out here and make them trust our hundred dollar bill to be worth hundred dollars, right? Um, this is also uh, really interesting because money tends to be a physical manifestation of morality for this reason because it is a lot about trust. Fundamentally, it's a lot about trust, right? At the end of the day, money is basically a, um, it's basically me believing that you will honor this piece of paper or this digital transaction or whatever. And if you don't, at one point, things is gonna start to break down. (laughs) 
Although we are moving towards a cashless society, I sometimes need money in cash. Usually it's only a few hundred kroners. But what would happen if everyone all of a sudden wanted to withdraw all of their digital money and everyone sold their stocks? Let's say tomorrow. Basically, uh, you would have, I mean, um, you would have a bank run, so the banks would go out of money, uh, and that means they would default, right? So banks don't make money because they keep our money. Remember that, right? They keep money by lending them out, right? So uh, if all of a sudden all the all the funds that they lended out were withdrawn, they would have a big problem. They wouldn't be able to make money, so they had to close down basically. If everybody tried to sell their stock, the the, the price of that would be plummeting, which means that for the Companies that were otherwise healthy might go under, right? So, and, and these kind of things have a, have a large effects. Some of this can be, um, you know, psycho- psychology driven. There's definitely a lot of hurt behavior and this kind of stuff, right? Uh, because we try to protect against uh, again our values and what we're worth and all that stuff. If this starts to happen, but it has like huge consequences, right? The market can stay insane longer than you can stay liquid. I think Keynes used to say, right? So, um, uh, and I think there's certainly a lot of value in that, right? So. So, uh, but again, also, if you have cash after that to buy up, you can make a lot of value in that, right? So um, our society is dependent on this running. So there is an ongoing debate in, 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 uh, in like macroeconomics and, and these kind of things as what's the smart thing to do? Do we want some level of control as we have a lot of now, again, like the money supply is controlled by governments, or is it actually better to let the market solve that themselves, right, basically? Um, uh, and and there's arguments for both sides of that coin, um, definitely. Ah, packing my bags, ready to go on a holiday to someplace new is exciting. So is it when I check the exchange rate. Will I be able to buy lots of delicious dinners, drinks and dazzling diamonds? Or do I have to watch my money carefully to make them last the entire trip? This is something that both fascinates and puzzles me. Because why is it, for example, that the Norwegian kroner isn't worth the same as the Indonesian rupiah? So right now we have the system where the, where the, the good, the money good is, uh, is issued mainly by by lots of states right and you can view these states as sort of like companies right and uh, these states might have different strategies they might have different pricing objectives for for what they do with their money right they might want to stimulate that you spend a lot or they might want to make you not spend a lot so norway have well now with the oil price being relatively low they have other issues but they have until recently actually had a very high buying power among the consumers right so so they might want to want to limit that a little bit Whereas in in Bailey, there's well to be fair to the Balinese people, uh, it's not Norway, right? So uh, so so the value of their currency is simply not the same, right? Um, and 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 then um, and then Denmark would be a little bit in between. Denmark has the pricing objective that we basically we use competitive based pricing on our money, and that would just price it next to the euro, right? So um, so so these are some of the explanations. It's simply like the strategy of the of the company issuing in the state, in this case, the uh, the good of the money that determines this. In December, I went to New Zealand for the holidays. Again, I had to check the exchange rate when I went to the grocery store or booked hotel rooms online. Somehow, it would make sense to have a global currency. Then I would never have to think about exchange rates ever again. 
But making a global currency isn't exactly an easy thing to do. Or a good idea, explains Stefan Kierkegaard's Lyck Messen, who also tells a story about a trip to the States. Well, to a certain degree, we do have the same money now. As we talked about earlier, lots of it is electronic and a lot of, of payment cards, the, the penetration of payment cards, credit cards and debit cards uh, are, are where we are high now these days, right? So lots of places you can buy without the risk of, of changing money. You might still have a currency risk, which is the next level in that, you know, once you pay the bill, you know, you might pay the currency right now and, and lock in that risk, or you might decide, no, let my bank solve it and then maybe have a pleasant surprise or a nasty surprise later on, right? And this is the other part of this, that when you exchange money, you take on a risk or a gamble. So a risk here, I mean the fact that it can be, uh, you might make money. I remember I went to the state at one point and the, and, the, and the dollar was really low and I actually ended up with so much left buying power in my budget that I could drink champagne for the last night I was there, right? Which I didn't expect. I thought I would be on Bud Light for the entire, entire trip. I also went to the States where the other thing happened, right? Where actually, you know, I basically had an extra bill by the time I came home. Uh, so so you're taking on that risk by, by the fact that it's different consumers. This is why we don't like to do it. So there's a convenience element, but that's not so big anymore because lots of things you can do on credit cards, but the risk element is still there. So what would happen if we had just one issuer? Well, one thing we can say we already had happened in the fact with the credit card, and that's the fact that people probably spent more. I think people spend a lot more going away now than they did in the past, because in the past, I remember that being an 80s child, you know, you know, you were you had the amount of money you had, right? Like it was hard to get more money, so you had to be careful with what you couldn't just go on and spend. Where now you go and you see a nice shirt in a shop window or whatever, a nice record or whatever you like to buy, and you think, oh, whatever, I'll just buy that, right? So I have access to that fund. So it's more transferable. That would, of course, probably even more happen with a global currency. However, the global currency would be a monopoly and it would be a non-competitive monopoly. So, you know, there would be no guarantee that the value would be actually rightly set, right? Because what you can also do now in case the euro start to plummet is that you could just like invest a lot in New Zealand dollars, right? And basically save some of your value if you think that's smarter, right? You wouldn't be able to do that. You wouldn't be able to send these pricing signals to a global currency. Also, you would be dependent on a very wide range. Like it's, it's relatively easy to figure out the value of Denmark, so to speak, or the value of Norway. It's very hard to figure out the value of the world. And that gets us to the last thing. If, if, if we argue that currencies are basically a good, that the companies of the state issue and therefore have a pricing strategy on, well, what would be the pricing strategy of a global like, how would you control that of a global government? The democratic ramifications of that would be insane. Like, if you should we have a finance, global financial ministry, like, and who would vote for that? Like, you know, like, would it be a democratic at all? Like, if you look at the United Nations, that's like not haven't don't have a majority of of, uh, of democratic uh, nations anymore, right? Or member states and stuff like that. So, so like the policy issue of doing that would be insane. We have a small version of that though with the euro because the euro is a shared currency within the European Union that actually don't have a financial minister to back it up, which is one of the reasons why it sometimes runs into problems, right? Like, you know, it's it's a good without a pricing strategy, right? And we have many of those goods out in the market. Remember what I talked about earlier, most companies are bad at pricing strategies and that makes those companies suffer. But that doesn't matter so much because it's on a smaller scale. Imagine if this was a good we all needed to use to do everything else we needed to do. And that didn't run really efficiently. That would that would cause a lot of a lot of uh, pain and heartache. 
So <clears throat> I'm not saying we couldn't have a global currency. I think either by forcing it through, I guess it could happen. I don't think that would be a good idea. Or we could also, if we had free money, you could potentially think of the situation where you could have a competitive-based monopoly, right? We de facto have one money, like the Apple money or something like that, or the Google side of making money or something like that. And a lot of people thought that efficient. And as long as there was competition, they kept it efficient. It could happen, but, uh, but that would require a lot of institutional changes. Remember, economics is about scarcity of resources and choices with institutional constraints. So with the t- current institutional constraints, I don't see the efficiency of having just one market currency. We can also put it another way. If it were efficient, it would probably be there. So apparently a global currency seems to be a no-go. But I can't help thinking about having one. So I ask Stefan Kierkegaard Slyk Massen if he sees any kinds of advantage of having a global currency. That's a really hard question. So um, I, I think I would like to answer that in a slightly different way. So imagine that we had a monopoly on a good that we all use now, which is a free market traded good, say shoes, right? Imagine we had, we had a monopoly on that. And people went the other way and said, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's remove that monopoly. And then a lot of people say, like, what would happen? You know, would poor people have shoes? You know, what would there be shoes for them? Like, and what we can see is that these kind of goods have many different types of shoes. There's many different shoes out there. There are shoes that cost more than a car, and there are shoes that cost like nothing, right? Everybody has shoes, right? There's nobody walks around without shoes, right? So like somehow the market provides lots of different solutions that I cannot design, and it's sort of like the 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 other way around. If if uh, the thing, the good thing about markets is that you get all these things that nobody, not even somebody as smart as me, <laughs> could ever ever envision, right? How how that would actually play out. So what you're asking now is, is is the advantage of rolling that back, and I don't think there is. I think whatever advantage there might be uh, would take away a lot of other advantages. If anything, I think it's too controlled now, right? I think I, I would like to have more competition on on the good for money, uh, and, and the good of money. Um, but of course, maybe you would get more spending potentially, right? But again, would that spending be based on real values? That would be hard to say, right? You know, but of course it would be more convenient. So therefore, people would maybe spend more, right? But it's, uh, I think it's it's impossible to to it's simply impossible to to with any kind of human modesty and with any respect of the knowledge problem of the fact that consumer choices are unknown before they exist to to foresee the bad side effects of that. I would be very wary of that. I think it's great that we have competing currencies now, like Bitcoin and stuff like that, and other cryptocurrency. I don't understand a lot about them, and I'm not uh, in that market, but I think just the fact that they're there is a good development. Just as we are about to round up the interview, and I'm turning off the recorder, Stefan Kierkegaard's Slyk Massen breaks in. There might be a slight opening for having a global currency, but then it should be without the interference from governments. Instead, it should be controlled by the market. To explain this, he gives examples such as eBay and the Silk Roads. One thing that that we know is that national governments is really bad at solving global issues. Basically, this is why we had the EU and United Nations stuff is to have some sort of venue to solve global issues, right? Because national governments are better at that. They have they have uh, they have governance over small issues. So what we see with entrepreneurs happening now, with, for instance, Bitcoin and stuff like that, is actually getting 
getting smart market-driven solutions to solve some of these issues, right? So maybe through that you can have a global currency, then maybe it would be a good idea. But I can't invent it. If I could, I would do that instead of doing this, I guess. Um, and to give you a concrete example of how this works, to make it more concrete, if you look at like eBay, which is an, an, a national auction site, right? eBay is, um, eBay is to those people who don't know it. It's like an auction site. You can sell all these sorts of stuff. And then, you know, you send money and then hopefully they send you the good. And the only control you have is the fact you can rate the transactions, positive, neutral, or negative, right? So you have this reputational effect. In the past, I would not have traded records for somebody in Texas because if that guy or girl uh, cheated me, I would have no ramifications. Like, you know, the Danish government couldn't do anything. The U.S. government probably wouldn't care. And if I were to pay a lawyer and stuff like that, it would like totally, so I simply wouldn't do it. Now, because I can like put thumbs up or thumbs down, I trust enough in the market to do it. And this becomes a market chosen law, as, uh, as it's called. So it's become like a superior legal system to what national governments can provide. And we could imagine something similar in markets. There's another, so, so markets tend to work if you know, either you have institutional constraints that can punish people for non-compliance, or if you have reputational effects. But we can also see that it might not even need that. Markets are so natural that if I want to trade something with you, I would like to continue doing that. So I'm not interested in cheating you. It's a positive sum game, right? So I'm not interested in cheating. I actually do want to provide you with a good product that you want to buy again, and you want to tell your friends to come buy it from Stefan because you can trust him and all these kind of things. And there was this, uh, there was another sort of uh, online site called the Silk Roads, which um, which uh, was like uh, you could only trade in Bitcoin. You had to access it through the Tor network and like all these sort of things. And you know, so basically very hard to access, but completely anonymous, so no reputational effects and no government effects, right? So all these people there was well, they were mainly trading drugs, right, and other stuff. They were criminals, right, by most standards. And there was actually a study done on the satisfaction on the consumer level on transaction there. And 96% of the transactions there, without reputational effects, without institutional constraints, were actually gotten a 5 out of 5 rating. So like even criminals trading without reputational effects, even like, you know, trading drugs, right? Stuff like that, generally tends to just want to continue trading. It's a natural way, right? We, we, we don't see this as an opportunity to cheat each other. We see this as an opportunity to, to do what I want to do, make drugs, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and to do what you want to do, use drugs, right? So, you know, we want to do that. So maybe we could imagine, if we do want to have a global currency, I'm not saying that we should have that, but maybe there can be, you know, some kind of market-developed solution for that. But that's the only way I see it could be efficient. Money, whether they be in coins or ones and zeros, will to me forever be an interesting medium that can be a little hard to comprehend. But I hope that you have gained a better understanding of how they work. If you are curious to know more about how money and prices determine how we live, make sure to check out the podcast A Priceless Guide to Prices, featuring Stefan Kierkegaard Slykmassen. As always, if you like what you hear, never hesitate to tell your family and friends, even strangers, about CBS Wire podcast. You have listened to CBS Wire. <laughs>